1: Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. <laughs>
0: Welcome to the Art Box. We are at the Marjorie Barrick Museum of Art on the campus of University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Linda and I drove down for the day, and we have a friend now, Hickman Sidney Lowe, and Heckman, I'll give your job title, but maybe it will be better for you to go ahead and do it.
2: Oh, sure. Happy to do that and very happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for this invitation. I am um, in my third year teaching at UNLV. I teach art history. I am a part-time instructor and I'm very fortunate. I have graduate teaching status. What do you teach here? So in teaching the 400-level classes, um, one of the classes that I've taught every semester is art since 1945. Great class. And then I started teaching history of photography, which I hadn't taught before. And every time I'm in that Class, I think this is like the, my most favorite class I've ever constructed, I've ever taught. But then I teach land art, and then I get into the classroom and I think this is the best class. Oh my gosh. When I taught the, um, so I teach land art also. Um, when I taught the first time the um, graduate course, it's called Theory and Criticism. And I was very excited about that class, working with graduate students and thinking about the contemporary state of theory and criticism. And then this coming fall, I'm going back to basically my roots in teaching. I've been teaching since 2006. I moved here a couple of years ago from Salt Lake City, where I had lived on and off for 30 years, and started teaching at Westminster College there, and then expanded out and taught at the University of Utah, taught through the Utah Humanities Program, program called Venture for adult learners, and then a program called Clemente, which was for specific populations of high school students. And and all of this is art history. So I am in my third year now here at UNLV, which I'm very very happy about. I love uh, it's the student population here. I love the student population. So when you talk
3: about land art, you're talking about the historical land art that was created
2: in Utah and Nevada? As a start, yes. Okay. Um, so when I started teaching and started giving uh, lectures about land art, my background started with Spiral J. I needed to do a master's thesis for my uh, master's degree in art history. I was at Hunter College at the City University of New York. And I had left New York and moved back to Salt Lake City before I had finished off that degree. Spiral Jetty had just come out again and was visible to people in 1993. So it was built in 1970. 1973, it goes under the water because it's situated in Great Salt Lake, which is very, um, it's a terminal lake. So it has very variable, I guess levels to it. Every day the water rises and falls. So I determined that instead of, because even by 1993, 94, so much had been written about Spiral Jetty, that when I moved back to Salt Lake City and I determined that was my topic, my topic ended up being local reaction to Spiral Jetty, because when it was built in 1970, Robert Smithson and his wife, Nancy Holt, um, had a group of friends. His gallery director, Virginia Duan was there. The sculptor, Richard Serra, was there. There were different people who were coming and going, but they were all people who were coming in from helicopters and not people driving from Brigham City or Salt Lake City to see what was going on. Nobody really knew about it, but in 1993, It becomes visible, and it makes the local news, and everybody's just gaga over it. You've got to go see Spiral Jetty. You've got to go. So when I moved back in 1994 and reconnected with, with friends of mine, it was the same thing. You've got to go see Spiral Jetty. So that ended up being my, you know, sort of the resurgence of the earthwork and then local reaction to it. Through that process, because I was working on a master's paper, Nancy Holt, who was married to Robert Smithson, who had died then by 1973, she vetted uh, master's, Ph.D. books, big writing projects about Smithson's work. And so I got to know her then, through that process, and she saw me as the person in Salt Lake City in Utah who was sort of her connection, then to that earthwork, and then of course to her own earthwork sun tunnels. So, the, starting from 1995, 90, excuse me, 1995, 96, I started working with Nancy Holt and did an interview with her. The Department of Natural Resources in Utah the geology, the division of geology, wanted to do an updated version of their book on Great Salt Lake. So they had done one book, and then 20 years later, they wanted to do an updated book on Great Salt Lake. Because again, there were a lot of changes. A lot of industry had come in. And they also wanted to include the art of great salt lake within that book and so they had contacted nancy holt and she said well you need to talk to hikmit she's written her master's thesis on spiral jetty and so that my thesis ends up becoming a book chapter for this anthology on great salt lake and then it also included an interview that i did with nancy holt on sun tunnels Also, there was uh, Kenneth Sasson who did a whole chapter on the petroglyphs and pictographs around Great Salt Lake because that was such a populated region before Euro-Americans came in and displaced the populations. That were living there, so that they could move in and they could live there. So we've got uh, we've got historical information also about that. Anyway, I then continued working with Nancy Holt, and so my expertise in one work of earthwork, then became expertise in two. And I very much have really appreciated being here in Las Vegas. And particularly the exhibition that we have now and the work that Katie Hoffman has done and put together, um, who she, I got to know Katie because she was a student in my land art class in the fall of 21. We're online. I get to know students basically through their voices and their projects because I don't tell them to turn their cameras on. I just know that I've got a really enthusiastic person on the other end of the line who lives in Paradise, California, which is a complicated town because of the disasters. So we're thinking a year and a half ago, right? But her projects keep on just bowling me over and she just wants to keep on talking about land art and here we are. For our
3: listeners who may not be familiar with Spiral Jetty, can you describe it for Mm -hmm. them and how big it is, and also Sun Tunnels? Sure,
2: absolutely. Spiral Jetty, created by Robert Smithson over a course of about two to three weeks, April 1970. I think it's really fascinating because we're now in April 2023. We're still talking about this work. It was created during the first Earth Day. That was 1970. It was also created the year that the EPA was formed, the Environmental uh, Protection Agency. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a very interesting intersection of a lot of activities going on. But within Robert Smithson's trajectory, he was building up to the point where his work led him to being outdoors and creating a very monumental earthwork. So he works with a construction company. It ends up being 1,500 feet long, 15 feet wide. And within, with the drawings that we get to see of the work, it's about three feet from the base of the uh, lake. Than standing up with water being anywhere from covering it fully to not covering it at all. So it's, it's a fascinating work because, oh, 6,650 tons of basalt and limestone and earth and soil and oolitic sand, right, all of that is forming Spiral Jetty. He wanted uh, an inland body of saline water that was colored red. And back in those days, because that's a comparison to right now. Back in those days, that would happen. Um, the water again, uh, Great Salt Lake is terminal in nature, and so water comes in from three different rivers, but it only leaves through evaporation. And he knew that he had done. He was a polymath. He was quite intelligent. Uh, studied on his own. Didn't go to college, and did a huge amount of research to figure out. What was going to be sort of like the best reaction that he could make to that region? What, what would be like the best that he could create to be part of this landscape. And so with his reading on Native American spirals and the symbolism of that and knowing the different tribes who had been there, um, from that to the idea of the spiral itself and the salt that grows out there and the different aspects of having salt and crystalline growth to being 15 miles away from the transcontinental railroad and having that idea of of speed and motion. So he takes all of these different ideas that he's researching and and sort of embeds them into Spiral Jetty. And we know all of this because he does his earthwork, but then he writes an essay called The Spiral Jetty. He is filming what he's doing, and that film ends up being a film shown that fall, the fall of 1970, at the Museum of Modern Art. And it's called Spiral Jetty. He's created basically a work in three parts that is looking at the earthwork, but then also the film is a separate entity in itself. The essay is a separate entity, but they're all mediating each other. They're all referential to each other. And so what I did when I was finally thinking about writing a book on Spiral Jetty, I had so much material because I'd written my thesis in 1995, 96, I never stopped researching the work. And so I just kept on adding and adding and adding and and then started to have people who were interested in seeing me publish it as a book. And so that book ended up coming out in the fall of 2017. It's the Spiral Jetty Encyclo, spelled like Encyclopedia, but shortened, Yeah. Uh, exploring Robert Smithson's earthwork through time and place. In that process, then, of knowing Nancy Holt and working with her and knowing that Utah had two monumental earthworks, I also then started to research and understand sun tunnels, which Nancy Holt created. That that was
0: one of the, you're talking sun tunnels being one of the two.
2: Yes, absolutely. That's great. That's a great reminder. So we've got Spiral Jetty created in 1970 on the north end of Great Salt Lake, about two hours from Salt Lake City. Sun Tunnels is out in the Great Basin, in the Great Salt Lake Desert, on the western edge of Utah bordering Nevada. It's created from 1973, when Nancy Holt first gets the idea to create this work, to 1976, when it's completed. So she goes through, what's fascinating about spending years and years investigating one work of art is that you really get to see what are the processes what were the ideas what were the various changes that took place as as these artists were going through because often we'll look at the final work of art and think oh oh, that just sprang up out of nowhere look how fabulous that is spiral jetty there were multiple drawings to let us know all of the iterations of ideas that Smithson went through. Because I am now working on the sun tunnels in Cyclo, that's also going to be published by the University of Utah Press. It's the same thing with Nancy Holt. So I spent about five days in the archives of the Holt Smithson Foundation last fall and got to see her preparatory drawings, her photographs. Initially, it was going to be three tunnels in a line, and then it was four tunnels. She created little objects, she had little maquettes as she was working through all of these ideas. And, and it's a very different it's a very different work, right? Utah has these two, historically monumental works of land art. Whereas Robert Smithson, in creating his work in a lake that is so terminal and fluctuates so much, although it hasn't had water around it for some time now, it's, it's been high and dry. So that idea of the barometer of being, you know, Spiral Jetty lets us know what's going on in Great Salt Lake, where the lake levels are, and the lake has been ravaged by human use, a little bit from the climate crisis, but mostly by human use. Sun Tunnels is very different. It's in a valley, it's made out of concrete. These concrete tunnels were created in Linden, which is south of Salt Lake City, and then transported out there. So Sun Tunnels is different. It is operating on cosmic time. So if if Spiral Jetty is in a lake that's changeable, it has this idea of entropy. Right, of moving forward through time, but constantly changing and eroding. Absolutely. Sun Tunnels is different. It the four tunnels form an X pattern on the floor of the desert on alkaline soil, and they are situated so that the sunrise and set in the summer solstice and the winter solstice take place in one tunnel and then The sun sun rises in one tunnel, sets in the one that's 45 degrees away from it. Same thing with the winter solstice. Rises in one tunnel, sets in the other one that's 45 degrees next to it. So it's about cosmic time. It's about uh, Nancy Holt often talked about wanting to bring human scale back to an environment such as this. That her work then helps people to be able to sort of orient themselves in that specific site and look at the way that the sun is moving. If one is camping out there, look at the way that the moon is, is moving. So, You said you studied the
3: reaction of the locals yes. to the art. Uh, what was the reaction and has it changed?
2: Well, the reaction to Spiral Jetty in 1993 was of just wonder and awe look. The lake has gone down again, and this is, you know, like a whole history of Great Salt Lake, which is a huge history because it's so such a dominant body of water that's right there. So, um, by 1986, the water had risen so much in Great Salt Lake that Spiral Jetty was under 16 feet of water that maybe now today gives you an understanding of climate change and human intervention because the short, because the water is like a mile away from spiral Oh, is Shetty. it really
0: that far away oh now? it's
2: that far away oh, really it's it's been really as much as i have moved out of utah i am obsessively tracking what is still taking place in <sighs> utah
0: well, when he built it what was water level
2: Um, What I can do is I can direct you to my website, which has that information. Um, uh, 4192.5 is uh, the number that I'm going to throw out at you. But what I did on my website, which is my full name, HikmatSydneyLow.com, I have a tab there for Spiral Jetty. And I have tracked through all sorts of different people who have sent me photographs of Spiral Jetty. What I've done on my website is I've put those photographs there, looked at the USGS USGS water level, and then correlated it to the visibility of Spiral Jetty. So I've got this huge archive then on my website of what was the lake level when he built it, what was the visibility, and if the lake level's here, what are you gonna see? If the lake level's there, what are you gonna see? So I did that. I also did that in my book. I've got a running sort of couple columns of 1970. Here's what the water level was. So I did all of this research then to be able to parse out and get that information. The land art was basically done out west in the seventies, um, starting in the sixties, and then moving into the seventies. Okay. Yeah, so and, that's that first sort of movement, and it was mainly Utah, Nevada. Was was there some in Arizona, yes. the other
3: western state?
2: Yeah. Um, So we have Michael Heiser, who was an initial enthusiastic proponent who had different friends. One of them is Walter de Maria, who then, Walter de Maria is out here and does a work of land art. Michael Heiser does initially three of them. Robert Smithson and Nancy Holt in 1968 were on a trip with Michael Heiser when they go to Jean Dry Lake and they're all helping him to dig his rifts and, and, you know, sort of work on his uh, nine Nevada depressions. So it's it's an interesting sort of start where maybe the kernel of all of that was here, but we have to sort of go back in time to think that Heiser's not the first one. It was Jean Tanguil. Who was a Swiss artist who in 1962 had been invited to come from Europe and come out west and do a project. He had been he was already well known as an artist who worked with materials, metals, kinetic art, sculpture, things moving, things blowing up. And so he gets commissioned to work on a piece here in Nevada because of the proximity to atomic test. Right. We're, we're here. This is so this is 1962 that he's invited to do this project. So he comes with his partner of the time, a woman named Nikki de Saint-Fall, who was American but ended up in Europe. And so think about her in, in those terms, both both places. They come to Las Vegas and they're filmed the whole time in the project that they're working on, because this is a commissioned work that's going to be on TV for an hour, hosted by David Brinkley. Mm-hmm. What he does is, I know, it's, it's this right. not, for, for somebody like me, like not long forgotten, because it was such a seminal work of art, but to think about that at the time that it was David Brinkley. So in 1962, he comes with Nicky DeSantfall, and they're working on this project. So what does he do? He comes into Las Vegas. He is at the Flamingo. He is gathering materials. He's gathering garbage. There's a great photograph of him in this process because it's not just him doing this or the two of them working on this. There's a huge media presence Okay. documenting everything he does. What he's doing is he is making a comment on the 1962 Geneva disarmament convention. Again, nuclear testing. His work is basically about that. He's, he's collecting all of this refuse, pa- tests it on site in Las Vegas, packs it up onto all of these trucks and lowboys, drives it out to Jean Dry Lake, sets it up there, has a panel He's got like a whole electronic panel board and he's basically hitting buttons and things start twirling and blowing up. We consider that to be the first action, that first work of land art. And what's interesting and fascinating about land art is it gets complicated when we remove land, the use of land or earth in the work. So Spiral Jetty, is using the materials from the shoreline to create that drawing on the landscape. Lee wasn't doing that, he was finding garbage and setting it up and blowing it up to make a statement out on the land that is, and so we think about this within the context of what is that saying, how is it drawing us to that place? How is it drawing us to the ideas of that place? How is that drawing us to land use? And and those that's when I think land art becomes really fascinating because it opens up the definition. And I certainly do that in my land art class here at UNLV. We might start with these iconic works that we talk about in the 60s and 70s, but then we quickly veer off of that so that we're not talking about a select group of white people during that time period who were working on the land today we look at that and think oh that's very colonialist of you isn't it right so we so there's a huge expansion of canon of land art today
0: What I find interesting is that we all tuned in on black and white TV to watch David Brinkley host that. Yes. I don't remember it.
2: Now, I don't remember, 1962, I think I was living in Turkey by then. That wasn't a program that I watched then, but certainly when we moved back to the United States, I mean, I grew up watching my parents, watching David Brinkley. Interesting how it was influenced by... The nuclear testing, mm-hmm. the atomic Abs- testing, and absolutely. The Cold War. I mean, it was it was a different iteration of we go to the desert, which is quote unquote I'm doing air quotes now a blank slate quote unquote desolate quote unquote. There's nothing there, and then the biggest quote unquote is manifest destiny, and we can just go ahead and take over this region, take over this land, and do what we want to to it. We have a very, very different idea these days about land use and what that means. And and I think that's really fascinating. I, you know, land art is that way that we can start to think about land use. I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Jean Dry Lake if not for all of this. You know, there's an airport that's going to be built down there would we use would we have these same conversations related to an airport being installed I, I i don't think that we would but art gives us that entree art allows us or gives us permission or invites these conversations
1: will the world in a grave
0: take a look around you boy it's bound to scare you boy and you tell me
3: We just interviewed Emily Budd a few minutes ago and learned about her art where she picks up recyclable materials and waste materials from the desert and incorporates that into her art. So that was quite interesting.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about the land art projects here?
2: Mm-hmm,
3: sure. desert, Ab-
0: desert, desert markings and... Modern um, desert
2: markings, absolutely. So back to the fabulous Katie Hoffman, who then really didn't want to stop these explorations. And I didn't fully understand when she was a student, what that looked like. And she was in touch with me as soon as um, she had graduated to say, I want to keep on working on this. Here, here are some of my ideas. And I was back in the classroom, and I knew that I was, this was just last year, that I was gonna be busy up to a certain point. So I was very encouraging, They, they were great ideas, but the way that then she set up, and she and Rayette, who started to think about what does this project look like, what does art look like now, related to this. In Katie, in their identification of the five works of land art created around Las Vegas, which there were, starting with Tongalee in 62, going on with, I mentioned Walter de Maria his Las Vegas piece that was done, and then Michael Heiser does three pieces. So we've got these five works that are all all very different in different ways that were done here, and what the Nevadans for Cultural Preservation certainly want to do is, at the 50-year mark, a work that is cultural in the landscape can then be identified by the organization and be put into a database so that there is information. Anybody who is out on the Mormon Mesa and just happens to, like, be out there for whatever reason, which there are hardly any reasons except to go to double negative, but if one were out there, one would will then end up seeing a marker that identifies that work. And so I love that idea of looking at that five historical, but then that that amplification and blowing up, and again, I give them credit, I give Katie credit, for this is to have artists respond. Not only are they responding to the five works, but they're responding to the sites, which meant that then artists needed to, in the call to them, they needed to respond and say, yes, I promise I will visit at least one of these three sites. And that was brilliant. That was a brilliant move. I had a question for her early on. The full title of the exhibit is Modern Desert Markings, an Homage to Las Vegas Area Land Art. And I said, can we look at that word homage for a second? Because as we're doing the call for people who are responding to site and to former works that... Except for double negative, one doesn't even see them anymore. They're gone. Is that what we want? Do we want an homage, right? Because I think about, uh, do we want people to say, yay. Look, look what happened in the past, and we're going to recreate it. And she said, let's see what the responses are. And that was the perfect thing. So the way that then I started to become part of this project last August once my schedule cleared up and i've been working uh, ever since this idea of homage is really fascinating the way that the call then was put out to artists was to say we're looking at them we're interested in responses we want contemporary responses you have to promise you will go on one of these site visits we've got a short amount of time and a small pocket of money that we can give you And initially our exhibit was going to be in the workshop space of the barrack, which is a hallway. Uh, It's a big hallway, but it's a hallway, and we were so grateful to have that hallway because what we thought we would do initially was have representation Either a photograph or an image from a book of each of these five works on one side of the wall. And the other side of the wall would be five artists, one responding to each of those works. We set our sights really, really low. We got 70 responses internationally. Wow. And it was uh, shocking. Um, it takes a lot of time to then go through. And not that I'm complaining. It was just, we were just overwhelmed then because we needed to really dive deep into every single response and say, but if we pair this work and we think about this in relationship to that. And at the same time that's taking place, the Barrick Museum very generously says, you can have another wall. You can have another wall. You can have a fourth wall. <laughs> and at that point it was like, we're good, we're good. I, th- I think we're OK. So instead of having five artists respond, we bumped that up to 10 to see. And we didn't dictate to any of them homage. We didn't dictate materials, right? It was It was their interpretation, their response to the site. And I could not be happier. Any of those 10 artists, I am so happy with the works that were done because they're varying degrees of interpretation, of taking ideas of land art and blowing them up or extending them and expanding them. There are ideas of leave no trace within the exhibit. There are ideas of the biomes and what the environment looks like of religion and colonialism and indigenous sovereignty all of the ideas related again to contemporary ideas of land use are in our exhibit and once Katie and I realized that as we started to put that together the exhaustion started to lead to wow this is it homage, this is what homage means it means critical thinking in relationship to past works that made that we that wouldn't be made today. And how can we extend those ideas further?
0: Yeah, I can remember it exploding, Katie saying, well, you know, we've got this one little ball. Oh well it got bigger. And then I hear from Ray, it got bigger.
2: It was great that that was that was a great moment and and it's when one is curating there there are a lot of different ways that that happens right you have a collection you pull from the collection you invite certain artists who have done certain works and you put those together what we did was not the easy way we then responded to 10 artists. One of them had to pull out because of a time commitment. We were able to put another artist right there because uh, we had people to choose from. We had our A-list and then we worked with that to have a complete A-list. And it was really fascinating because then we let the artists go and we were fielding questions from them. Uh,
0: there wasn't much time left. by now No. Either. And
2: the, and there really wasn't much time left. And huge props right now to Paige Bachman, who is collections and exhibition vision manager here at the barrack, because it ended up being a triangulation of the three of us working really intensely, starting in, in probably October, November. One, once we had selected the artist, then there were the questions, the logistics, the, well, I thought I was going to make a sculpture, now I'm making a video. Well, now I want to do this. Instead, I want to do that. Well, you told us to work big. Is 25 feet too big, right? I mean, and and so it was between the three of us. we We were this sort of machine that was working through all of this to be able to get the artists to the point where they had fully realized works. And that was so exciting. And Katie, I I wish I could uh, express the look on Katie's face when I said at the opening, "Okay, phase one is done. Now we're going to go to phase two of this project. She just looked at me with those, what? (laughs) The exhibition
3: is really fantastic and it takes quite a while to look at it's not like what I would think is a typical exhibition. I told Steve. I said I want to go back and look some more and look at the videos. It's quite interesting. I was just talking about how video. The, yeah. It's fascinating, the, and it takes a
2: while to actually really take in the whole the, whole the whole exhibition. And so I think about the exhibition. It's multiple parts, right? Um, We start, and and as much as it seems counterintuitive to people who are in a museum, it starts in the back in the workshop gallery with the wall that has information about Nevadans for cultural preservation. So that should be the entree to the exhibit. Not when you first walk in, but walking in and continuing and going back to get that information. On the wall opposite is a project that I'm actually, I'm just really proud of it because the students knocked it out of the park. In the land art class that I've got this semester, I wanted to, I I was very grateful the Department of Art then scheduled the land art class this semester knowing that the exhibition was going on. So I was able to just fold everything and then keep on working with multiple groups of people, be it co-curator, museum staff, artists, and then students in my class. And so I came up with this idea of mapping as a project for the students to get them engaged, to give them feelings of agency, of what are their ideas related to land use. And so I went to the USGS store online and bought a boatload of maps. So I bought the maps where all of these different works of land art reside or used to reside in Utah and Nevada so that there were enough maps and sites to accommodate 18 students with nine sites and said, alter them. Do what you want to. This is is up to you. What is it? Who's the map for? What's the map about? What does that land art there even mean? How do maps tell us the truth? How do maps lie? And so they had three class time periods to work together on this project. These are students who have art-like students full-time and work full-time and have families. And and so they're really crunched for time. So I gave them three class periods. The first one was getting to know their teammate because they were in pairs of two. And what were the ideas, based upon their map, that they wanted to really start working on? But then they were also, and I could watch them sort of looking at the other team. What's that person doing over there? Right. Some of them had immediately been communicating with each other, and the first day, boom, they just were on it. By the second class, they had started to really change. Because then they're thinking about the whole and their part, and a couple of them just up-leveled just absolutely, so by the third class, I was so happy with every single iteration. So already we have, in the workshop gallery, we've got this idea of land use and how it is altered. I mean, the, the big simple thing is, how are maps altered? But it, they really go much deeper than that. So that's part of the exhibition. And then the exhibition starts with Mark Bresven Kempen and his project where he goes to Las Vegas piece, and he's looking at the desert plants and the topography of that region. And so his piece is there with the markers that he's used in the landscape and the photographs of all of that. Emily Budd's video is right there embracing that corner, which turns it into a whole sculptural idea of a video. And then the exhibit goes from there and then moves down and around in through the gallery space. So it's big and it's complicated and all of the ideas and you and you're right so the video we had a couple artists who were like oh we want to do video instead but by that point we already had all of the videos and the projectors dedicated we didn't think of this as a video exhibition we thought about it through a number of different medium, which they did, but a lot of them would have included even, there could have been even more videos. Sure. And they do, they take time to go through mm-hmm. to and to really absorb and to understand sort of what's going on and what that message is.
0: You definitely have to come here and spend some time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now I must say, I was surprised about your, your, your students. That was a real bonus.
2: Yeah, it was, that's great. Yeah, I'm very, very happy about that. If you allow somebody to get engaged and give them agency, then it just, if they remember nothing from this semester, they're going to remember that they made those maps and they were considered artists in the Berwick Museum with their names on the wall.
0: There you go. Yeah. What I find interesting is we interviewed Mark. and his thought of this art, art isn't always what you see.
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: Initially, see. Let me put it that way. But Mark mentioned to me that he thought maybe that the real art was not what was done 50 years ago, but what has transpired since those 50 years. Basically, the reclaiming Mm -hmm. of the land back. He Mm -hmm. believes that's the art.
2: Oh, that's excellent. Well, and that reclaiming takes place on the human and non-human level. It's both right and so people reclaiming and people wanting to have that sovereignty that is due them um the plants that can reclaim in a trench that was dug by a big huge bulldozer for nothing other than a photograph of a work of art right the desert tortoise who can then again Be within that region because maybe that was disrupted and it was a home for them. We didn't think about that. And so in a way, that word homage is accurate. But again, it's also we're subverting it. And that's fine by me.
0: (laughs) How many times must the cannonballs before they forever bound. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Talk about extraction. Hey, I think extraction is huge right now. Yes, it is. And, and on a call the other day, they talked about that they were suing the BLM because of an extraction project that the BLM is licensing for lithium right outside of Canyonlands. Mm. But it seems like we need alternative energy, but not in my backyard. Right. And I guess I'd like your... I mean, it's a hard question.
2: Um, it is a hard question, and...
0: Yes, edge of the abyss.
2: Well, because I'm part of this group. Okay. Extraction, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have been looking at... Practices and and land use practices for a while now. Um, a A number of years ago now, a group started out of San Francisco called Extraction, Art on the Edge of the Abyss. So it was two artists who were interested in looking at extractive processes and how artists have responded to that. And it blew up because artists have been responding to it like crazy for a really long time so they started with an idea that there would be some people writing there would be some artists who were creating work based on this idea there would be exhibitions i was in utah at the time where we started to get this inkling and hurt and heard about this project that was going on and none of the institutions in in salt lake city were really interested in doing an exhibit which i thought was a big failing but I'd already said that to them. So I committed to writing an article for this project based upon the extractive industries on Great Salt Lake and what that means. The the lake brings in like one point something billion dollars a year. Well, if you don't have the lake there, you don't have that money. And if you don't have that money, what else is going away? And so there's a huge amount then that we can learn through art as artists have been responding because the responses are, um, I don't know if either of you have been to the Berkeley pit up in Butte, Montana. So there is an extractive mine that's up there and it's so large now that it looks like a huge sleeping giant on the hill overlooking the entire town. The water in the base of the pit, which is huge, is so toxic that if birds get close to the surface of the water, there's a sound that's emitted automatically to steer them away from it. Because if they end up in the water, they'll disintegrate. And so there there just have been a lot of artists who have been responding to extraction. And it's a really, it's our complicated world. What are we going to do? Everybody's so excited about eco cars and cars that run on batteries. Batteries run on lithium. Where do we get lithium? We have to extract it, right? So we're moving from fossil fuels, I think, I keep on hearing that, I'm not sure, into a different form of extraction. And it's our world. We're, we're so used to these creature comforts and the ways that we are and having my phone that's got lithium in it. Having my car that I don't know what it runs on besides the gas that I put into it all the time, right? I mean, the, the, it's the way that we have set up our existences, and we'll see how far it gets us, or what starts to start sort of crashing at a certain point because of extraction and and the you know then the negative ramifications.
0: Because beauty comes in there.
2: Yes. Well, it's interesting. There is a photographer, Edward Brutensky. He's a Canadian photographer, and he had been doing a number of series based upon mines or tailings, and he creates these large, large large-format photographs that are absolutely exquisite. They are beautiful. And then you read what they're about, and you just kind of get a little sickened because of what we're looking at in that. There's The first film that was then made of his work was called Manufactured Landscapes. And it's still a hit. It's still a film that really resonates. Because there's uh, Jennifer Bookwald, I think is her last name, who's the filmmaker. Then they're working with him as the photographer. And they're traveling around. And they go to Bangladesh, where the ships have been grounded because of the water situation there. They're going to China. You can't see through the air because of the air pollution that's there. And here, they were there working at the time. Um, they were building the Three Gorges Dam in China. And to then, he's he's they're literally filming and photographing the families who were told, "You have to get rid of your house, and we'll give you X number of pennies for each brick you give us as you dismantle your house because this whole thing is going to be water at a certain point." So there, there's an interesting beauty in all of this in looking at these images. Another photographer who does this work is David Meisel, who is a friend of mine. And he, with his Guggenheim grant that he received a few years ago, he was able to use that money to go down to Chile where the Atacama Desert is. So he goes down and he wants to do his aerial photographs of the extraction at the Atacama Desert. Edward Bertinsky has also done that. They both are photographers who have not shied away from going to these places and then creating exquisitely gorgeous photographs of absolute destination in the landscape. It's it's where we are.
0: You're on fifty-three minutes. Okay. Oh, okay. So, I, can so. You even, I can't believe we've gone
2: Oh, it's
3: just fascinating talking about the land arts. And I can talk about this yeah. like for months.
2: Hickmet, you're also an accomplished author as well, right? Um, I have written and it turns out that I am a writer. I never had thought about myself in those terms. I spent 25 years as a librarian. So oh, really? I've, got that, I've got that whole background and history in me of being a librarian. And it was a really interesting, I was an art librarian mostly. Belonged to the Art Library Society of North America. And a couple just a couple years ago, right before the pandemic, actually. So it must have been in the spring of 19, for the very first time the art libraries, uh Arles, as they're called, had their annual conference in Salt Lake City. I gave a keynote address to the group. They wanted somebody who was local, but who had been involved, been informed, I had been a librarian, and they wanted me to talk about what that was like to go from being a librarian with a career, with a master's degree, all of that, and then transitioning into the life that I ended up creating for myself. And it was and it was really it was fascinating to be sort of self-reflective. And what were the things that in that journey I did well, some of the things I wish that I could have sort of redone in all of that. But it was it was a fascinating move from working within systems where we, libraries, are there to provide information to people doing research. And little by little, I started thinking, but I want to do my own research. And this was little by little, like over 25 years. For a while, I thought I would go get a law degree, and I don't know where that idea came from. Like, that never happened.
0: Well, then you realized you had a soul.
2: Or, <laughs> yeah. And that was when I was living in New York City. So the whole thing was like, we're, uh, I don't know, that's not going to happen.
0: Oh, I'm sorry if I would upset any of my lawyer friends. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but as I was doing the research for my master's in art history, that's when I just got the bug. And I just wanted to sort of keep on writing. And I knew that... What I had written, some of the content of it was new, and it was unique, and that, was, that made it useful. But I wasn't a writer then, and it took a really long time for me to think, oh, but I can be a writer. I can take this idea, and I can work with it, and I can expand upon it, and I can critique it, and I can do all of these different things with this idea. And the more I do it, the more little bits. I just I put one of my toes out there and think, ooh, can I do that? And a great example of that is as I had my manuscript for the Spiral Jetty book. Working with an academic press means that you are jumping through all of the hoops that they provide for you, which is how they know that they've got a good product that they're publishing because it's been vetted by so many people. And in that process of vetting, the book had to be read by two anonymous scholars who were within the the area who would know what I was doing related to Spiral Jetty. And so the first scholar, the only thing I know is that this was somebody who had written extensively about Robert Smithson. Okay, That's all I know. And because I'm not the one picking the, the anonymous readers like that makes no sense
0: well this is quite a thing because Smiths in there i mean we're talking about a narrow yes you know, a very narrow subject right to have anonymous
2: to have anonymous but we've got this smithson scholar and i've got this book and it's seven chapters and it's clunky and it doesn't work as a book and this person then r- makes a couple of recommendations, says, yes, you should publish it. And I'm like, oh, OK, I got through that. But can I make a recommendation? Uh, there were several recommendations. One of them was change the format of the book. You're repeating too much through these seven chapters. It's not working as a whole. What if you broke it down and you turn it into an encyclopedia? where you're taking all of that content for that one subject and putting it in that entry. And for eight months I was like, I didn't write an encyclopedia. And then I woke up one day and went, whoa, that's a great idea. So that was very valuable to me. Equally as valuable was one comment about one section where I was writing about Lake Bonneville that ends up through a series of events and ruptures in the landscape and climate change. Um, Lake Bonneville turns into Great Salt Lake. And I wrote about, imagine being at Spiral Jetty but having a 1,000 feet of water above you and what that would be like and what you would see and you would be surrounded by. And I wrote this whole thing that was something I'd never done before and I was terrified I did that and I kept it in there and that person said the way that you wrote that do that that's what you do because it was imaginative and it was evocative it wasn't the here are the facts mm-hmm. it, it was putting it was something that was really different and i would never done that before and, and again it was terrifying to me to do that and I've thought about that ever since I've literally thought about that. And as I'm writing about sun tunnels, now it's the same thing. It's that dominant thing that I'm thinking of. If I'm going to be putting together and marrying ideas based upon Sumerian geometry and mathematics with Shoshone indigenous land use beliefs at the site of sun tunnels, how am I doing that? So I've given myself a challenge. Yes, it sounds like you have. Yes, I have.
0: <laughs> Do you dream about your art at all? It doesn't have to be art. Do I dream about it?
2: I, I dream about being in these landscapes. That's my inspiration. My family, I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania on the East Coast, and my family decided in 1977 to leave Pennsylvania and move to Salt Lake City. Uh, or actually Ogden, which is north of Salt Lake City, and I had just started being at Penn State. I was quasi-engaged at the time. You know, there was a lot going on in my life. So I didn't want to move with them. I had my life in Pennsylvania. They all were going to be picking up and going out west. So a couple weeks after they moved, I flew out from Penn State, a couple different flights to get to the point where I could get to Salt Lake City. And I'm... In this airplane, and I'm looking down on a landscape I've never seen before. Today, I would be ecstatic and give you many evocative descriptions of what that land looks like, but I was young and terrified and felt like my family had left me and left Pennsylvania, which is thick and wooded, and you're inside of these landscapes. And here I'm flying over a landscape where it's all on the outside. And I developed agoraphobia. It was it was like this stunning thing that happened. I'd never seen a landscape like that. It was so alien. And it really impacted me. And it's taken, you know, thank goodness, I just keep on living. Because it took me a long time to go through and process what that meant. And I think that's where that started, this idea of what does it mean to be in a landscape, on a landscape, a part of a landscape, be repelled by it, feel embraced and encompassed. And so I think everything I do comes from that initial impetus. One of the things that Nancy Holt has had talked about a number of times in a number of writings is her first experience in 1968 wrapping us back to what we were talking about earlier when she's with Robert Smithson and Michael Heiser and they go to Jean Dry Lake. And she says, for three or four days I didn't sleep. It was this euphoria, this... I felt like my inner and outer landscapes matched, that what I was seeing on the outside was how I felt on the inside. And to hear somebody articulate so beautifully that thing that I had been striving for but didn't even know how to, like, recognize it, let alone be able to then put it into words like that, that are simple, evocative, right, sort of explain one's existence. Once I started to think that way and and I think um, I sort of did a whole appreciation recently to Robert Smithson about him being the person who helped to change my thinking most radically right like I'm I'm not a guy from the 70s who was doing those things there are things I appreciate about Spiral Jetty and I appreciate that the book has has been received well and there are some things i like about the work and some things i don't it doesn't that part doesn't matter to me as much as what are the different ways that one can think and live one's life based upon these different investigations and so for me it's always been art it's always been that sort of that starting point that that button that reset button of saying okay boom i reset this now let me go back to these ideas and then try to flush them out a little more and a little more differently. Love it. Great.
0: Yeah. No, you just keep on talking. I
2: can talk until the cows come home.
0: We'll just go to our age-old question that we end every episode with. Okay. Um, Heckman, what's inspired you this week?
2: What's inspired me this week? Well, I just, I mean, that's so easy in a way. Um,
0: okay, then we'll ask two
2: Okay, well, because I just finished with uh, students in my Land Art class, and what inspires me is the their ability to, and I think that I, in part, engender this, but I also think that it's the way that students are now. They just will talk to me. And they talk to me, and they tell me things, and it helps me to be a better educator. Like some of the superfluous superfluous stuff I can put on the back burner. But in class today, they were just so, they had projects, and they were talking about their projects and showing and comparing to each other. And they're, they're just so, I love the teaching. I really do, because it's, I'm not imposing ideas and saying, you must love Spiral Jetty. I'm like, I don't care. You can hate Spiral Jetty. Don't care. I want you to think, though, and I want you to think critically. And I keep on telling them all. I just want to knit them little critical thinking caps, right, that they put on their heads and then go through that process.
0: So love that part. So you're not so much their teacher, is that? You guys are all partners.
2: We're all partners, yeah. And, and I think about it in that way. I'm not the first time that I was teaching and I was in a room and it was in a basement and there were 24 seats and 24 students and there was a lectern on the table and I looked around and I took the lectern and I put it on the floor. I, I can't do it. I, I don't do it. I'm Even here in the auditorium, there's that being front-centered, right? Standing in the front. They're sitting in the auditorium where I'm much more comfortable having a big round table so that nobody is centered in being that, that everybody has equal footing because then they, that's when they can start to really sort of stretch.
0: Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank thanks, you. Thanks for allowing me to join in this land art project. Absolutely. It's been fun. I know I was just a driver, but no. I had a little fun. And certainly a lot of great conversations in the cars. Yes.
2: And that's what it's about. It's about, you know, the people and the connections, the conversations, and how to, I don't know, what's the goal? Live better, think better, be more compassionate, all Boys. those things. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you, Hickman, Thank you. for being with
3: us today. This was a fascinating interview. Great. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.
1: Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.